think if, if governments have goodwill and can focus on a few things, not a free trade area of the America, not any broad initiative on democracy, because the conditions are just not, not like they were, except that we have new realities. The United States is a different role. China is a major player in the region. And this is just a new reality. So we need to sort of recognize and, and adapt to that. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Nicole Rivas, and I am joined by my co-host, Alexis Holowinski. The Summit of the Americas brings together leaders from North, South, and Central America and the Caribbean every three years to discuss challenges and opportunities for regional cooperation. The summit this year will take place in Los Angeles from June 6th to June 10th, making it the first time the U.S. will host since the inaugural 1994 meeting in Miami. On the podcast, we will discuss the historical significance of the summit and the political implications of the 2022 meeting. What does a successful summit look like? Why are some countries not receiving an invitation? Mr. Michael Shifter joins us today to discuss the ninth summit of the Americas. Michael Shifter is the former president of the Inter-American Dialogue, a leading policy forum on Western Hemisphere affairs based in Washington, D.C., Shifter has held senior positions at the Dialogue for nearly three decades and currently serves as senior fellow at the organization. Prior to joining the Dialogue, Shifter directed the Latin American and Caribbean program at the National Endowment for Democracy and, before that, the Ford Foundation's Governance and Human Rights Program in the Andean region and Southern Cone. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you. So the, so to start us off, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about what the Summit of the Americas is and what what was the vision for this event at its conception? Well, the Summit of the Americas is really the only forum or gathering of all the heads of state um, throughout the Americas, um, democratically elected heads of state. Uh, that was stipulated in the, in the summit, and that is still... Um, at least in formal terms, the case uh, today. And it was motivated by a very special moment, a window of opportunity um, that coincided with the end of the Cold War and uh, fall of the Berlin Wall um, and uh, transitions to democratic rule for military rule in South America. Uh, Chile uh, ended the dictatorship of Pinochet and moved to uh, democracy. Um, and it was also the end of the civil conflicts um, in El Salvador, which ended in 1992, and then um, and then Guatemala a few years uh, later. So it was seen as an opening and uh, a chance really to talk uh, together about how to cooperate on principally on two issues. Uh, one on democracy, on furthering democracy, and the second was free trade um, and open markets. And um, that was the vision um, that the Clinton administration had, but also that all the other um, governments had in the hemisphere. And the only government at that time that was not uh, invited to the summit was Cuba uh, because it was not a democratically elected government. It was dictatorship. So um, that was the, the origin of it. And of course, of that first meeting, uh, what really emerged as the main idea and the main vision um, was having a free trade area of the Americas, um, which would take some time to build, but that was the goal, that was the objective um, that all of the governments participating in that summit uh, shared. 
And how has this meeting been significant in regional politics and the future outlook of the Western Hemisphere in the past? Well, it it takes the measure of different themes. Um, Each summit, I think, could be highly associated with different themes that were emphasized that became important on the uh, agenda and um, got the attention of heads of state, which means it got the attention of the bureaucracies and the agencies in different countries. And I think that was important, um, even though if one looks at today in 2022, um, I think there are a lot of challenges, a lot of concerns. Um, the progress on a lot of the issues that were identified properly, appropriately for the summits, um, there hasn't been a lot of progress. I think the progress has been disappointing. To, in 1998, after the Miami summit, there was a summit in Santiago, Chile, on education, a critically important issue. Uh, But again, Latin America has not made the progress that many people uh, had hoped. Um, There was also a summit on on drugs and drug trafficking in 2012. That was the main theme. Again, a very important, relevant issue. But the advances, I think, have not been what many had hoped for. And in the last summit before the current one uh, coming up in Los Angeles was um, in 2018 in Lima, Peru, which uh, emphasized the um, the issue of corruption, a very important issue on the agenda. Um, so, but again, <clears throat> the uh, there has been some progress, but I think the record has been mixed uh, at best. So, um, I think it has been an agenda-setting exercise, which gets the attention and mobilize, mobilizes um, different agencies and actors in in countries in the hemisphere. But again, if one really does a very honest assessment on how much progress has been made on democracy, free trade, corruption, drugs and education, uh, I think the record is not uh, very encouraging. And to bring us up to present day and before delving into the specific questions that surround the U.S. hosting the summit this year, could you briefly provide us with an overview of what the Biden administration's strategy in the Americas has been thus far? President Biden, um, I don't think there's been a U.S. president, at least in my memory, um, who has had more experience, more background and better prepared to deal with the hemisphere than than Joe Biden um, as head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And of course, as vice president to Barack Obama, he was sort of the point person on hemispheric policy. So he comes to it, I think, with genuine concern and interest. and I think there were, for that reason and other reasons, there were high expectations when when his uh, administration began and he was able to put together a team. But of course, um, it's been very, very difficult to give uh, really sustained high-level attention uh, to Latin America because of the, um, the priorities at home, uh, the pandemic, uh, racial justice, of course, the, the, the great um, economic problems uh, now with inflation, and of course the foreign policy agenda um, with China, and of course more recently with uh, Russia and the war in Ukraine. So um, it's it's what I think is a very genuine interest that really hasn't been able to be become a a, a real uh, focus of the president uh, because there are just uh, you know other concerns that take precedence, and of course the pandemic and the like. So. Um, what I think has been the main 
interest of the Biden administration has been migration, especially from Central America, from the Northern Triangle. Uh, the Vice President Kamala Harris has been the point person to deal with the root causes of migration. So uh, to try to uh, help uh, develop uh, governance and, and increase economic po uh, possibilities and opportunities in these countries. Um, and so there's been some engagement uh, on that uh, issue. And um, there's also been uh, a lot of um, uh, rhetoric and, and discourse about uh, democracy, human rights and the like, which I think have been uh, expressed in certain cases, more humanitarian uh, concerns, I think, than the sanctions and the threats and punishments that characterized the previous uh, Trump administration. So there has been some pivot, there has been some shift, um, but a lot of the policies really have been pretty much a continuity with what we've seen before. And of course, the migration issue um, has been very, very difficult. Uh, because not only is the migration from Central America, but there are increased pressures on the border from, from other countries as well, uh, Haiti and Cuba, Nicaragua, but also other countries, uh, not only in South America, but in other regions of the world. So the circumstances have not been very favorable. And I think there's been some um, frustration on the part of the administration. And I think some skepticism um, from Latin Americans that really the U.S. has the capacity uh, to really uh, be very helpful to the region at this point. Right. And there seems like there's a lot of different things on the agenda right now. But um, and you mentioned democracy and human rights. And on that note, the U.S. is not likely to invite Nicaragua, Venezuela and Cuba, three authoritarian countries whose relations with the U.S. have deteriorated in recent years. And as a result, some leaders such as Mex Mexico's president, um, AMLO, as he's sometimes called, um, have threatened to boycott the summit unless President Biden changes course. And, and also several members of Congress have also called for these countries to be invited. And we're recording this episode a few days prior to the start of the summit. Could you explain to our listeners the background on the tension over the summit invitations as of May 31st? As I said at the outset, the first summit of the Americas was really... Um, for the democratically elected governments in the hemisphere, which meant Cuba was not invited. That was in 1994. Um, and then there was the Inter-American Democratic Charter that was signed um, by Secretary, then Secretary of State Colin Powell in Lima, Peru on 9-11-2001, uh, um, just after the uh, attacks um, in the United States. Um, and in that charter, it does say that for the summit meetings should be um, only for governments that are elected democratically. So there is a, a rationale uh, within the charter for not including governments. I think nobody would argue that uh, any that either that any of the uh, of Cuba, Venezuela, or Nicaragua have been um, have had democratic open elections. So uh, that, I think, is the argument a bit of the administration and those who want to exclude, um, uh, you know, uh, those those governments from from coming uh, in Congress uh, as well, especially members of Congress, Repu Republicans, but also Democrats, um, a lot many of them concentrated in Florida, 
where a lot of the Cuban-American and Venezuelan exile populations are, are concentrated. On the other hand, the argument is that, um, what, you know, notwithstanding the democratic charter and notwithstanding the origins of the summit, there are certain practical realities. Um, and um, the fact is that in the 2015 summit in Panama, which I had the opportunity to attend, uh, and I witnessed the, the famous, what's called the famous handshake then between Barack Obama, then president, and, and Raul Castro, president of Cuba at that time. So Cuba did uh, participate in the 2015 uh, summit. That was right after the opening uh, and the rapprochement between Havana and Washington. And so it recognized and took into account that Cuba uh, in order to deal with a lot of the issues that were on the agenda for the summit, uh, Cuba uh, should have a seat at the table. Um, and those who um, were who, who are critical of Cuba for not being a democracy should feel free to condemn and denounce Cuba, but do it in the open. Um, and they deserve the spot at the table. And then the next summit of 2018, Cuba was also um, uh, um, uh, a participant. So, uh, so in the last two summits before this one, Cuba has been, uh, there at the table. And, um, so that, that's the argument. And of course the United States is talking to Cuba about just had recent talks with Cuban officials on migration. There has been a really a dramatic spike in Cuban migration to the United States and the United States is concerned about, trying to have a more orderly process. And so there've been talks. So if the, the argument is if migration, which is perhaps the highest priority, I think the Biden administration has for this summit um, is to try to get some agreement, hemispheric agreement on migration. If that is the issue uh, and Cuba is um, sending, uh, there are a lot of Cubans that are coming to the United States and pressures on the border and Cubans, Cuban officials and American officials are talking to each other um, they should have a seat at the table, even though they are not uh, a democracy and can't be called a democracy in the sense that 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 uh, we know of having having been elected um, and open and, and free elections. So um, that is the other uh, argument. And for and for Latin Americans, especially of the left and Lopez Obrador is a, considers himself a leader of the left. Um, it's it's an important issue, and he is the head of a party called Morena Party. Uh, I went to his inauguration in 2018. That is uh, Lopez Obrador, and there was applause for uh, Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela and applause for the Cubans. And um, there is it's not that Mexico considers them models, but certainly there's a certain degree of solidarity. There is a sense that the Cubans have suffered because of the U.S. embargo for many years. And also their recently, since 2019, economic sanctions on Venezuela. So um, that's the other side of it. And then a couple of other governments have joined uh, them. Some have said that uh, you know, Lopez Obrador has threatened to boycott, as well as a few other governments. But some, like um, the Chilean president, the new Chilean president, Gabriel Boric, and the Argentine president, said that they would they would encourage that these governments be um, invited, but that it would not if they weren't they wouldn't they would still attend. So there have been different positions, but this is um, I think an issue of governments in Latin America who 
identify themselves as the left uh, feel that these governments should be invited. And in fact, they did participate in 2015 uh, and in 2018. But many people are saying, uh, you know, this is only democracy should be there. So that is is the controversy. And obviously, the administration, especially in the case of Mexico, really, uh, if, if Lopez Obrador does not come and there hasn't been a final decision that I'm aware of as we're as we're taping this um, I think that would be a little bit uncomfortable for for you know for such a significant I mean that there's no no relationship bilateral relationship more important in this hemisphere than US and Mexico um, and so I think that would be uh, very very unfortunate you sort of laid out um, the two sort of sides of this um, and I guess from here, what are the options for the Biden administration in responding to these demands of other summit participants? Um, and how do you believe President Biden will respond? I, I guess you just said you're not really sure, but do I, you- I, I, I don't think I, I, this is my own view. I mean, I, uh, my own interpretation. I don't think an option is to, uh, you know, is, is to uh, is to change his, you know change change the view and invite these three governments. I don't think that think think he would be, um, you know I think he would be perceived as as weak and indecisive and and caving in to pressures from leftist government. I think that's um, I, I don't think he would be comfortable with that, and I think it's also would make him politically vulnerable in some sense. I think what they are. What they were exploring, what was mentioned, and what might be sort of a solution to this, and it just you know, it's hard to know where this stands exactly. But there have been, uh, I think, discussions about this is to perhaps invite a not invite the president of Cuba, who today is uh, is Diaz Canel, but invite uh, somebody else uh, in the Cuban government uh, to you know to to attend. Um, not as a seat at the table, but they would be present in in the summit, and um, that would be, I think, um, you know, that would be a possible compromise. Um, I have no idea whether that would be acceptable to Cuba or be acceptable to Lopez Obrador, but my sense is that that's something that it's least uh, worth pursuing. But um, I, if that's not acceptable, I really don't see the Biden administration reversing course and uh, saying, oh, we're going to invite these these three governments. I think the least the one that the one the one that I think people care least about is Nicaragua of the three, uh, which is really uh, where Daniel Ortega has presided over a, just a, an egregious wave of repression, uh, terror and um, is really the worst. Uh, really, we haven't seen this in 30 years in Latin America. Uh, in the case of Cuba and, and Venezuela, Cuba, of course, has, has always had a soft spot in, in, in the left in Latin America because of uh, Fidel Castro and because of the revolution and because, uh, you know, the, the many of the left think that it, the, the embargo has been very um, ill-advised and punished the Cuban people. And again, the whole the sanctions in Venezuela also. Uh, don't, uh, there's not a lot of sympathy and support for that among uh, Latin Americans. I think Nicaragua is a, a different case. So whether this compromise or this in sort of intermediate uh, sort of solution uh, can take hold or would be acceptable, I don't know. But um, to my knowledge, that was what was last being explored as a way to kind of 
to salvage this and to get uh, at least some of the, you know, at least Lopez Obrador and some of the others that have threatened to boycott to, to attend. And to take a step back from the source of like diplomatic tension that you've just laid out for us, what would a successful summit of the Americas actually achieve? Well, I think it's important that, you know, the, the, after the first summit that I described, um, you know, uh, the subsequent summits, um, you know, haven't been, uh, you know, they, they've been somewhat productive. But I think, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard to get 34, you know, governments um, to really gr- agree on a set of concrete ideas, you know, beyond general, you know, principles or, or general objectives. Uh, and, um, but I think, you know, I think what I think a successful summit would be, it would be, uh, you know, let's take, start with what has been devastating for Latin America and devastating for the United States, which has been the pandemic, uh, which was not, um, I think not, not managed and dealt with very well and without getting in into the politics and who did what, but I think overall the record is, has been very bad. Latin America is by far the region that has been most ravaged by the pandemic. It has 8% of the world's population and has about 30% of the deaths uh, due to the pandemic. So um, the pandemic hasn't completely gone, and I don't know anybody who doesn't believe that there'll be other health crises and emergencies. So what I think what a successful summit would be, number one, is to really uh, really sort of do, really assess the, the collective uh, failure um, uh, of the response to the summit. There was virtually no cooperation, uh, either among the Latin Americans or with the United States on the summit. The, the United States came very late to it. The Chinese and the Russians had already, <clears throat> had already poured a lot of the vaccines in before the United States even started. So I think um, to really establish uh, some uh, viable, realistic uh, steps that could be taken, that should be taken to enhance, uh, you know, the management of health crises in the future uh, among countries and also the United, with the United States would be, I think that would be uh, something that could be very, very useful. Um, the United States is also pushing for a migration agreement. I think that's also an issue. It's not just migration uh, on the U.S. border. This is not a U.S. issue. This is there's migration. There are pressures. There are strains. Remember, there are six million um, um, Venezuelan refugees um, that have left the country since 2015, and most of them are are concentrated in 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 this in Latin America and the Caribbean and puts an enormous strain on governments. So a way to work together on, 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 on how to integrate um, these refugees and other migrants, uh, I think would be worth, worth doing and uh, could come up with, with something. Climate change could be also another issue um, where I think uh, if the United States is prepared to make a substantial uh, economic, uh, financial commitment to the region, I think there are real possibilities for Latin America to play a much more important role and make a contribution to to addressing the climate change uh, challenge. So I think those are some of the things that I think would, if they were accomplished, would 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 constitute a successful um, summit. So, um, um, you know, there are clearly this is not a good moment for the region. It's not a great moment for the United States. 
And um, but I think if if you know if if governments have goodwill and can come together and focus on a few things, not a free trade area of the America, not any broad initiative on democracy, because the conditions are just not not like they were, and and they're not going to return like they were uh, in the early 1990s. Just accept that we have new realities. The United States has a different role. China is a major player in the region, is a, has consolidated it, uh, you know, as a regional partner for most countries. Um, this is just a new reality, so we need to sort of recognize and, and adapt to that. Yeah, and you, you talk about new realities and, and maybe a, a shift in, in what the U.S. role is in the region. Um, and so to, to finish, finish off the episode today, I wanted to ask, what does the summit mean for the, the future of American regional influence? Well, I think, I think the summit, I think, will uh, reflect that, the, um, that, that the, at least the political and diplomatic influence, especially in South America, but also in Central America and Mexico, has diminished you know, substantially. Uh, the U.S., you know, after all, has a lot of soft power. Look at all of the companies, the tech companies, and you know, from Amazon to Google to Facebook and others, um, that those are all U.S. Uh, based and, and, and obviously are widespread and in, 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 in used in, in, in Latin America and the Caribbean. So if you look at influence in more broader terms uh, and using those uh, companies, uh, certainly it's and soft power. It's still still there. But in terms of uh, political and diplomatic uh, influence and economic engagement, um, you know, it, it, it's on the decline. And I just think that that's, you know, I mean, there's no way that, you know, Latin America's in desperate need of infrastructure. There's just no way that the U.S. is going to compete with China in being able to, you know, support infrastructure, you know, major infrastructure projects in Latin America and the Caribbean. So um, that doesn't mean that the U.S. cannot, you know, that there aren't common interests and the U.S. can't do things that are useful, but it has to adjust its its discourse and its promises, and and to be aligned with the resources that it's prepared to commit to the region and uh, and focus on a few uh, a few issues. And I think you know in that way it can sustain some of uh, it, it. It could restore its credibility and sustain some some influence. But I think the risk is that if these uh, if there's if continues to be a disconnect. Uh, between talking about claims of hemispheric leadership um, when it, it really is, that doesn't exist, uh, that's really not aligned with the reality, there's a re- risk of, of, of continued, uh, you know, of continued distancing. Um, so hopefully this will, you know, this will serve as a, summit will serve as a, as a way to, you know, to, to, to be able to focus and frame what, what realistically can be accomplished moving forward. Well, thanks once again, Michael, for coming on the pod today. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.